want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning, we have a hard question that drives a difficult sermon. And this is the question. The question is, what happens when a person claims to be a Christian but doesn't live in a way that aligns with their stated beliefs? Over the course of this series, you've heard a variety of compelling descriptions of how God views the local church as his gathered people. Christians are people who are bought with the blood of Jesus. They've been redeemed, and their redemption is what binds them together. Because they've been redeemed, they make up a body with many different parts and beautiful variety with Jesus as the head. This is a group of people, Christians, the local church, who are devoted to worship of God. They are a family a family who all share in an adoption by God before the foundation of the world. And this group of a local church makes up a people who are committed to one another. And they become members because of that commitment. And I don't think it's as a stretch to say that outside of his own glory, that the most important thing to God is the local church. And as a result, God grows this people in following him as they experience his grace and the work of his spirit. And as a result, they grow, the church grows, the individuals grow to hate sin and to long for holiness. And they grow toward godly behavior and godly desires. But what happens When a member of the family doesn't act like she's part of the family. What happens when one of the redeemed lives like they haven't been redeemed? What happens when someone wants the pardon from Jesus, but they don't want the purity that comes with having Jesus? In short, what happens when a Christian lives like they're not a Christian? What is the church supposed to do? What does God do? And the answer that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is church discipline. Because the church is a gathered people who are accountable. And so we see this description of church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You've opened to it. Please follow with me as we read. It says this in verse 1. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and and that of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has d- done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or of the greedier swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is struggling with a variety of issues of belief and practice and a toleration of sin, it would appear. And here's the problem. The problem that he presents here in 1 Corinthians 5 is that the church is allowing ongoing sin in their midst. And the description is plain. A man has his father's wife. Doesn't say if it's his mother or maybe a stepmother. Doesn't say if his father is still living or if he has passed away, but it doesn't really matter. The man is engaged in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And everyone knew it. And they continued to allow it. Some people come and they be part of the local church, at least in practice, and they want the pardon of Jesus without pursuing the purity that comes with following Jesus. And this would be one of those examples. You could pick a variety of examples of persistent, unrepentant sin. Here, sexual immorality is the one that's talked about, and it's severe in its nature. And it's very pertinent for us today, isn't it? We live in a time that is sexually confused with a cultural ethic that regards sex in such a way that we could describe it as a new type of sexual revolution among us. The first sexual revolution in the West was largely due to sexual activity outside the confines of marriage. But now, today, we're talking about a whole different set of questions that revolve around sex. New York Times op-ed in October of 2014 published the comments of a Rutgers Law professor that argued from a legal standpoint that pedophilia is not a choice of a person, but rather it's a disorder that some people are born with, and therefore they should not be prosecuted as a result. 
In 2015, a major news outlet ran an article describing how one of the largest school systems in the United States, Fairfax, Virginia, was rewriting its family life curriculum to include teaching on gender identity and to promote the idea of gender fluidity. That is to say that a person is not made up of 100% boy or 100% girl, but that there's actually a spectrum of which people fall in this fluidity of gender. There's an assumption today in our culture that there's no real boundaries for sex. We truly live in a hookup culture that views very little consequence to sex. And as a result, people all across the board, whether Christian or non-Christian, are adopting a very casual view of their sexual relationships outside of God's purposes and boundaries. And so what that looks like, practically, is you will find many who claim to follow Jesus, but who are living in ongoing sexual immorality. They want the pardon, but they don't want the purity. Now how does a person get there? Or how does a church get to a place where they see that happening and and just sort of sit back and allow it? Well, the way that the Corinthians got there was spiritual arrogance. After describing in verse 1 what is happening, Paul says right away in verse 2 that the problem is that you are arrogant. (laughs) Ought you not rather to mourn what's happening? Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. And so there's an allowance of ongoing sin that's happening in the midst of the people and it's described as them being prideful or arrogant. Now we all know prideful or arrogant people. Some of you are prideful or arrogant. Maybe you recognize that tendency in yourself. One of the reoccurring themes of 1 Corinthians is Christian humility. The walk away from pride because Pride is an indicator of a person's spiritual state. And when you're around someone that functions in arrogance or prideful, you you can still relate to them in certain ways. But the nature of your relationship is severely distorted because things just aren't the way that they're supposed to be. But what about arrogance toward God? What does that look like? Well, here are some key indicators. Arrogance toward God is seen if you find yourself willing to believe some of the things that God says, but not other things that God says. That's a form of arrogance. Arrogance toward God is an unwillingness to take biblical or godly counsel from others. This can actually be not arrogance just toward the other, but arrogance toward God for whom that other speaks. There's a quiet form of arrogance that creeps in among us, and that is when we present ourselves as willing to receive counsel and godly principles, but quickly dismiss that counsel every time because they don't understand my situation or because I know better or because it's just too complicated. Well, that that can at times be a form of arrogance. Along the same lines, if we regularly justify types of behavior in our own life, and we claim that it's right to act that way or to speak that way or we dismiss it because of the way that we feel, even though it contradicts what God says. Well, that can be a form of arrogance. 
And one of the most common ones that we see today as pastors is that when people read the Bible and they don't like the plain meaning of the text, particularly about moral issues, and so they mask their they mask their arrogance in spiritual terms by saying, well, I just don't agree with that interpretation. And we all know that issues of interpretation can be difficult and complicated. But when basic moral issues are excused away under the guise of interpretation, that is just arrogance. And so it's interesting today, isn't it, that a lot of churches don't exercise discipline right here it says very plainly they're to discipline this man they're to send him out he's been removed among them purged is the language but churches don't exercise discipline or what you might call here excommunication because of a supposed posture that's not actually arrogant in their mind it's actually the opposite of arrogant it's it's humble and it sounds like this who are we to send out another person from the church? We are all sinners. How could we possibly expel another sinner? Humble. But friends, there's a difference between struggling with sin, which every person in this room struggles with, and living in persistent sin or unrepentant sin. And so when placed up against God's command, this kind of feigned humility is not actually humility at all. When we say in the face of one who lives in persistent, unrepentant sin, uh, who are we to send out that person? What we're really saying is, God, God, we know how to deal with sin better than you. And now it doesn't sound so humble. Prideful. True humility says, God, I will remove the log from my own eye. I will repent of my own sin. I will battle and struggle and strive for purity in the Lord Jesus. And when persistent, unrepentant sin is in our midst, I'll follow what you say in dealing with persistent, unrepentant sin. And sometimes, sometimes that means discipline. Some want the pardon of Jesus, but they don't want to pursue him in purity. They want forgiveness, but they don't want to live like they've been forgiven. They want grace, but then they sin so that grace may abound. But what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that persisting in purity is proof of your pardon. And we see that as we move to the solution. We see the situation, the problem, we see how they got there, and we see the solution is called church discipline. And there's two benefits to church discipline that 1 Corinthians 5 lays out among us. The first is in verses 6 through 8, the benefit is purity and the pursuit of purity for the body. So look at it with me again. He says this in verse 6. To the church, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here we see a metaphor that he's using of God's people in the Old Testament and this situation for the New Testament church. And in the metaphor, he's using leaven and unleavened bread. And the leaven symbolizes sin. And the unleavened bread symbolizes purity. And he's, what he's referring to is Exodus chapter 12, where we see the Jews called to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Every year the Jews would celebrate the Passover. They'd cleanse their home of leaven as a symbol of cleansing their lives from sin. They'd break only bread without leaven in it. And it would happen during the Passover celebration, the celebration in which they looked to God as the deliverer from their worst peril, their slavery in Egypt. And the day after the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin, and they would be without leaven in their homes for a week. And he applies this to them, to the church, the New Testament Christians directly. In verse 8 he says, As you really are unleavened, because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So using the imagery of the Passover, he says, You are a pure people who've been delivered from slavery, but not from the Passover lamb out of Egypt. You've been delivered from the eternal lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his sacrifice delivered you from the slavery of sin and sets you free. This is the gospel. This is what binds you together. God takes unworthy and sinful people, and by his grace, he forgives us through this sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus pardons And in this, he creates a new and beautiful community of people who love him and who he loves, and they're called the church. And all who confess and repent are welcome into this family. No matter what sins they have committed, no matter how far from God they were, through Jesus they all come together and are in equal standing at the foot of the cross. The gift of salvation is for anyone who would believe. And for all of them, pardon is given. And therefore, since the pardon is given, and God did this great work in you, Christians at Corinth and Christians in Northeast Ohio, then don't celebrate your new life by engaging in your old sinful ways. Let us glory in the gospel by being new and holy and pure. And so when it's framed in that light, you can see why in verses 11 through 13, he prohibits to be with those who claim to be a brother or claim to be a Christian, but don't live in the purity that the Lord Jesus gives. Those are poisonous, he says, because persisting in purity is proof of your pardon. The second benefit of church discipline that we see here is found in saving the soul. Now some of you say to this point, Pastor Nick, wow, this is a very judgmentally driven text 
It's a very judgmentally driven sermon, and if you're not careful, this is going to create a very judgmentally driven church. And I'm not so sure I want to be part of a church like that. Listen to the reason why the second benefit to this church discipline, and it's just the opposite of what we claim. The second reason and benefit for sending the unrepented one out of the church is so that there's an opportunity for their soul to be saved. Verse 2, remove him from among you. Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 11, do not associate with anyone who bears the name brother or bears the name Christian but if he's guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Verse 13, purge, church, the evil person from among you. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Whew. But when you put it all together in its context, it starts to make more sense. Without the context... It'd be easy to think that if someone screws up one time in the context of the church, they should be booted out. And some people have gone as far to try to apply it that way. But in a community that's driven by the grace of the gospel, it's just the opposite is true. This is clearly not the case. But in the New Testament, what you see is the dynamic that all Christians are going to struggle with sin. We're at war with sin in our bodies, in our members, and that part of God's work is taking us from far off sinner and continuing to refine us and make us more holy and give us godly desires and help us in godly actions by the power of his spirit. And so don't think that the church would be justified in being some kind of legal or moralistic stance that's overly heavy-handed. That's not what we're talking about here. In this instance, and in many practical instances that we can point to, we're talking about a person who's in persistent, unrepentant sin. We're talking about the one who's stopped battling. The one that's given in. The one that bears the name, but the life doesn't align. He identifies himself as a follower of Jesus. When he's confronted with God's ways, he rejects them. He scoffs at them. He continues in his open sin. His posture is arrogance toward God and arrogance toward others because of his own desires. He disregards godly counsel. He looks at what the scripture says, and instead of choosing life, he chooses rebellion. But he still, for some reason, wants to identify as a follower of God. Why? Because... He or she perceives the benefit of that. And he or she perceives or has tricked themselves into believing that if they bear the name Christian, no matter how they live, they'll be saved. And what happens in this instance? When a person calls himself a Christian but lives in persistent and unrepented sin, church discipline is in order. For those of you who have never heard of or experienced church discipline before, Matthew 18 gives us a helpful framework. Jesus talks about this very thing. He says when a person sins against you, you're supposed to go and talk to your brother, confront them. That forgiveness might be asked for and granted. And if the person persists in their sin, then you go back with another. Two of you go and talk to the brother or sister 
that forgiveness might be sought after and granted. And if they continue to persist in their sin, if unrepentant, it says, Jesus says, tell the church and then treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. That is to say, tell the church and then treat them like they're not part of the church. Tell the believers and treat them like they're not a believer. Because persistent, unrepentant sin in the life of professing Christians calls for discipline. And it calls for discipline because persisting in purity is proof of the pardon. And we come to this really sobering phrase in verse 5. Look at the command that Paul gives to the church. And if this doesn't stop you short, I don't know what will. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is not messing around. When you talk about taking somebody who's part of your family, somebody you love, somebody you would die for, somebody who you have seen the graces of God in their midst and have rejoiced and gloried in the gospel in their life, when you talk about somebody like that and the command to them is to deliver them to Satan. That should cause great concern. There are two possible meanings of what delivering someone to Satan is. The first that some people explain is that by removing a person from the community of God, they're delivered to the realm of Satan i.e. the world, the rest of the world, to suffer the physical consequences of their sin. And there's always some sort of natural consequences to our sin. We know that to be true. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel it, sometimes we don't, but it's there. And so rather than letting the person experience all the benefits of the community of believers, the genuine love and care for each other, the gifts that the Christians use to encourage each other, the experience of the corporate benefit and power of the Holy Spirit in their midst, this person is to be denied those things and sent out into the world because of their rebellion. That's one explanation of what it means to deliver a man from Satan, to Satan. The second explanation, and the explanation that I, th I think is probably right, is found in the couple of other instances that we see in the Bible where someone is delivered over to Satan. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, and he says, I have handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they'd be taught not to blaspheme. That is, these two men who are teaching false doctrine in the context of the church, who bear the name brother, but are not teaching what's in accord with Christianity, are handed over, and they're handed over with the purpose of being taught something, specifically. Secondly, we see in the Bible, the other instance, the only instance in the Old Testament that I can think of, is the book of Job. 
In the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Behold, I've handed Job over to you, but you must spare his life. And the purpose in the book of Job is that Job, by being handed over to Satan and experiencing the physical torment of that handing over, Job himself would actually be taught something. He would become more holy as a result of the difficulty that he has. That Satan inflicts spiritual and physical injury on him. And as a result, near the end of the book, in Job chapter 42, this is what Job says to God after all of the horrible things that he's gone through at the hand of Satan. Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So try to wrap your head around this. There's a sense in which God, who is the ruler and the king over all, who has all created beings under his command, even at times the one who rebel against him, there's a sense in which God allows, you could say, or even employs Satan to save or sanctify the believer who has strayed. The king of all commands the one who opposes him, he's in your hand. And the result is torment. But look at the text. Verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And here's the key. That is the goal of church discipline. The goal of experiencing the consequences of seeing the error, of even being tormented by Satan himself, would bring a person back to their knees to repent, to come back into fellowship with God and with other Christians. And hence, their body would be tormented, their flesh would be destroyed, and their soul would be saved. In a very real sense, church discipline, just like most forms of discipline in our life, enacts trauma on a person for the sake of their long-term good. It's a heartbeat of church discipline. It's not to enact judgment on a person, but it's to save people from the final judgment. It's not to give lasting injury to a person, but it's to save people from eternal injury. God will even go that far to save a person. God loves himself enough to hold up his word and the standard of his word to be true. He honors his son enough to not let people dishonor his sacrifice. He cares about the community of believers enough to keep them pure when people wander. And he cares about sinners enough to even chase them to the brink of their destruction to bring them all the way back into relationship with him. Experiencing something traumatic for the sake of our good is something that we see often in our world. It's a treatment when somebody's ill. 
Today, we have one of our missionaries' families back here, all the way from Nigeria, Sean and Ashley Reimer. They're both medical doctors. You should get to know them after the service today. And Sean is a surgeon. He enacts trauma on people all the time to fix the deeper traumas that they have. He cuts open their skin and their muscles and their organs to fix what's inside, and then he puts them all back together again. That's what church discipline does. A couple years ago, there was a story on 60 Minutes of a new type of cancer treatment that they've been exploring. It's been in the research phase for a number of years. I think it still is. But it's showing some significant strides. Everybody here in this room has been affected by cancer in some way, shape, or form, whether you have had cancer or know somebody who's had cancer. We know that many forms of cancer are deadly. And one particular type of brain cancer called a glioblastoma is an aggressive form of cancer that seems to come back repeatedly even after multiple rounds of chemotherapy or radiation. But in the last number of years, doctors at Duke University are beginning to treat this type of cancer by injecting these brain tumors with another deadly disease, polio, the polio virus. For decades, the medical community has been trying to get rid of polio, to eradicate polio from the earth. It's a disease that affects your muscle systems and eventually can cause paralysis and even death. But now, doctors are injecting this disease directly into brain tumors of patients with these glioblastomas, and the results have been absolutely amazing. In the early stages of human trials, the response is that the human immune system, combined with the factors of the virus, actually fight and destroy the aggressive form of brain cancer in a number of cases. For those who have had success, that type of trauma is something that they would never, ever trade because it saves their life. For those Christians who have wandered astray, the type of trauma that discipline has inflicted upon them or the tormenting of the flesh, even by Satan himself, they would never, ever trade because their soul was saved. What happens when a Christian doesn't live in a way that aligns with their stated beliefs? Discipline. Persisting in purity is proof of your pardon. And God keeps his church pure through the practice of discipline. And so in conclusion, I want to say just a few words about our history in this as a church and give you five benefits of church discipline. Old North Church has in its history disciplined people, sending them out of our midst because of this type of sin. Although at times we maybe have not done so as much as we should have. You need to know that the elders of our church are serious about this, and there have been cases of discipline that have happened even in the last couple of years, but have never reached the stage of public discipline, that people have been privately engaged in conversation about their sin and their lifestyle, not in a manner of trying to inflict injury permanently, but to try to save from permanent injury. With that combination of love that comes in a family 
and serious, serious concern. And so if you're part of this church, maybe you're here today and you're saying, I don't know if I want to be a part of a church that exercises discipline. And if that's true, then I would challenge you because I don't think you've thought it through all the way. I have people in my life that some of my closest friends in my life that part of the reason why they're my closest friends is because I trust them and they trust me. And I know, I know that if I get sideways on something that they're going to wrap me up the back of the head. Knock it off. <laughs> You're better than that. <laughs> Don't treat your wife that way. Pay attention to your kids. Stop doing the things that you're not supposed to do and do the things that you're supposed to do. And I know, and I know that that is for my good. Everybody needs people in their life that can say to them, don't follow the temptations and desires of the flesh, but let's go this way. Let's go toward the Lord Jesus. Let's take hold of the promises that he gives. Let's engage in what he has for us. Don't lose sight. And when we lose sight, because sometimes we do, they're willing to say and to do hard things because it's ultimately for our good. And so there's benefits to church discipline. Here are just five, and this is from Mark Dever. Benefit number one is that it's good for the person being disciplined. <laughs> we don't want to encourage hypocrites, but rather we encourage people to live true and faithfully. Benefit number two, it's good for other Christians as they see the dangers of sin. I don't know about you, but I read this passage and it scares me. And it should scare you. That, Lord, please prevent me from being so blinded from my sin that my, all of the Christians I know, all the people that I'm growing in faithfulness with, that all of them say, we're going to hand you over to Satan. That should scare you. It scares me. It's good for us to see the danger of sin, that we would not fall prey to it. Number three, it's the benefit of church discipline is for the health of the church as a whole. Discipline is no more central to the life of the church than medicine is central to our lives in this world. But sometimes it's necessary. Benefit number four, it's good for the corporate witness of the church in the world. That the world around us sees a people who are serious about living differently. We don't take God and things of God casually. We take them seriously. God is seriously to be reckoned with. Not every Christian is perfect. Far from it. But they're sincere in their love for God and their desire to follow him. And number five, discipline reflects the glory of God as we reflect his holiness. Friends, persisting in purity is proof of your pardon. May we individually and corporately reflect the glorious nature of God and us salvation in our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when it comes to hard topics about what it means to be the church, what the church is and what the church does, uh, we think of this as perhaps one of the hardest. And it's sobering because we live in a culture that is not particularly keen on the idea of discipline. 
and because we know that we have logs in our own eyes of sin and the idea of enacting discipline on another is incredibly uh, humbling. And we see, God, that at the end of the day, that the most important thing to you is not our temporal happiness in this life or the good feelings that we might have from a variety of things, but the most important, the most important thing to you is that our soul is saved on the day of the Lord. And so we pray, God, that you would help us in this. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.